welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's only fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us all go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he died, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into this world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, 
did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped up with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of God. And if you don't own one, you can certainly keep that one. That one's a gift um, to you. Um, Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we are uh, so thankful for this opportunity to gather around your word, to hear from you, our Father. And uh, we come with great confidence, Lord. We come with confidence that your spirit is going to come and speak to us because we know that you love your kids, We know that you love us and that you want to feed us and give us fresh hope. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would glorify your son here this morning. We want to see Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, guys, so we're, as David read there so well, we're in uh, John 11, and we're going to look at the the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background, just give you a little bit of setting on what's going on, we're in a time um, after the Feast of Dedications, which would be in mid-December, that would have been mid-December of 32 AD, so we're in the very beginning of 33 AD, so we're in the very last year of Jesus' mission. And that year's not going to be a long year, right? He's going to die on April 3rd, 33 AD. So we have just a few months here until his mission is complete. And and what's happening during this time is that Lazarus is dying. He um, is dying in his hometown of Bethany. Mary and Martha send for help from Jesus. They request his help. That, That request gets to Jesus. Jesus loves all three of them. That's very clear from the text. And yet Jesus very intentionally allows Lazarus to die. And that creates a bunch of questions and doubts and and confusion in this chapter. You can see it in the things that people say. Look in verse 21, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says the same thing in verse 32. When she comes to Jesus, she falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Um, Later on, when Jesus is weeping at the tomb, the, um, the friends of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they're like, oh, look at how he loved him. You know, look at how he loved Lazarus. And then, but one of them says, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind kept this man from dying? And so there's this questioning of like, I know he loves me, but why is he allowing suffering? And these are questions that are very similar to the questions that we have, aren't they? Two weeks ago, we looked at the the healing of the man who was born blind, and we saw that sin and suffering and disease and death and disability and all these things have entered the world because of sin, Not because of the individual sin, but because of human beings in general rebelling against God from the beginning. And one day he's going to end all that suffering, right? But why not now? I mean, that's the question of this text is, why not end the suffering now? Why does he still allow suffering to continue if he loves us? And this is a a question that has caused some to actually doubt the existence of a good and loving God. One of the most famous um, kind of ways to state it is called the Epicurean Paradox, The Epicurean Paradox is named after Epicurus, who died in 
270 BC and his followers, the Epicureans. And it's been repeated, though, by a lot of philosophers throughout the ages, including David Hume. And the idea is this, and it makes total logical sense when you think about it. They say, well, God um, may have the power to remove suffering, but he doesn't want to. That's one option. He has the power to remove suffering, but he doesn't want to. Therefore, he's not loving. Or the other option would be that God is loving and wants to remove suffering, but he can't. He's powerless. And what they would say is that, you know, according to them, that God can't be all-loving and all-powerful and allow suffering. And when you think on the face of it, it makes total sense, doesn't it? He's either powerful but evil, or he's good and powerless. But they would say, if he's good and powerful, where's the suffering coming from? And if he's not good and he's not powerful, why call him God? Right? And um, I first heard this actually in eighth grade. Um, I heard it from a very intense eighth grader with a flat top named Dan. And uh, his dad was apparently an outspoken atheist and would, like, give him all these things. And then he would come to our Christian school and blow our minds with the things that he said. And I remember I had just become a Christian after hearing the gospel for the first time a couple months before I heard this. So heard the gospel for the first time, became a believer. A couple months later, I got flat top Dan Blackford telling me, like, you know, that God can't be both all-powerful and loving. And I didn't know what to say, you know. I don't have any answer for that. Um, But I think, guys, as Christians, we need to have answers for these things, don't we? And we don't just need to have answers for other people. We need to have answers for us, don't we? I mean, a core part of our discipleship in this church is that we would prepare you guys to suffer. I mean, a church that doesn't prepare you to suffer isn't discipling people, right? It's a core part of discipleship. And, um, And we will all suffer, won't we? And John 11 gives us a great opportunity to look both at the love and the power of God and see a bit of why he allows us to suffer. And so that's what we'll do this morning. We'll actually look at two points, the love and the power of God, the two things the Epicurean said can exist with suffering. And so firstly, we're going to look at how we can have joy in our sufferings as we, one, trust in the love of Jesus, and then the second point will be hope in the power of Jesus. First, let's look at how we can trust in the love of Jesus. Jesus loved these people. It's very clear, and John goes out of his way to make sure we know that, okay? Um, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Um, Jesus didn't let Lazarus die because he didn't care about him, or because he was punishing him, or because he didn't name it and claim it, or because he didn't have enough faith. It was none of those reasons, right? We can see in this text that Jesus loved him. Verse 3, when the sisters asked for help for Lazarus, they called Lazarus the one whom you love, you know? They're so convinced, of Jesus' love for them. In verse 5, it says straight out, now, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and, um, and Lazarus. In verse 2, we see Mary is described as the one who anointed Jesus' feet with her hair. And that's coming in the, in the next uh, chapter. But this is an intimate friendship, right? This is a person that would, would break the most costly um, ointment or perfume over Jesus' feet and then wipe her feet his feet with her hair. I mean, these guys are close. We see in Luke, when, when Jesus came to town, that's where he wanted to be. When Jesus needed to kind of get away from the crowds and be with people that he could just relax with, he came to their house. And yet, here they are, in the hour of their greatest need, and Jesus doesn't come. And he lets Lazarus die. Um, and, and let's not forget, like, he had just healed a blind man who he just met. You know, what gives? (laughs) You do this for strangers, why don't you do this for us? And it's actually even more confusing than that. Look at verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Mary 
and her sister and Lazarus. What's the next word? So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. Okay, John goes out of his way to make this problem even bigger by saying, because he loved him, he didn't come. Okay, and that intentional delay of Jesus cost Lazarus his life. And so what verse 5 and 6 are saying is that Jesus' love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus moved him to let Lazarus die. Now, you might be tempted to kind of downplay the suffering of Lazarus and his sisters by saying, well, you know, he's going to raise him from the dead at the end of the chapter. You know, it's not that big a deal. But I would say to you guys first, one, they don't know that, okay? (laughs) They are watching him be sick, and they call for Jesus, and they're agonizing. When's he going to come? When's he going to come? Lazarus dies. They mourn him for four days. They don't know. And let's remember that that Lazarus had to die a real death. Okay? He had to die a real agonizing death that took several days. And his sisters had to endure the, the agony of this as friends and family come to mourn, and they're all kind of gathered around the grave. And, and yet John says that Jesus did this because he loved them. And you might think, like, what kind of love is this? You know? It's a strange love. You might say, no thanks, I don't want this kind of love, right? Um, but we need to back up, guys, and ask ourselves, what is the most loving thing God can do for us in any circumstance? Because we have certain biases, we have certain philosophies, we have certain worldviews in our mind that tell us what we think the most loving thing God could do for us. You know what the Epicureans would say? The Epicureans, they didn't believe that there was a life after this one. They didn't believe that anything else was coming. And so for them, the most loving thing God could do would be to give material blessing in this life, right? The highest goal of life is to be happy and content now because there's nothing coming later. And our culture, guys, is very Epicurean in that sense. Not as intellectual as them, (laughs) definitely. But definitely with this sense that, you know, that this is all there is. And, and, And we tend to think this way too. We're infected by our own culture. We tend to think that the most loving thing God can do is give us physical prosperity in this time, be that health, wealth, long life, ease, easy relationships, pleasure, prosperity, right? We're hardwired to think that's the best thing God can give us. So we're hardwired against God's answer to what is the best thing. So what is the most loving thing you can do? There's a couple of hints in this text. We see in verse 5 and 6 that he did all this because he loved him. So there's love is one motivation. But there's two other reasons that, that Jesus gives here for why he allowed Lazarus to die. And one of them's in verse four. Take a look. Jesus says to his uh, disciples, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. So first reason why he did this out of love is he wants to share his glory with them. Okay, He wants to share his glory with them. He wants his glory to be displayed to them. That is more loving than earthly prosperity to them. The second one is belief. Take a look at verse 14. He says to his disciples, and this is really wild when he says this to his disciples. He says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. This word glad means to rejoice. Very strong verse here. I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. So Jesus wants to display his glory to them, and he wants to give, he wants to strengthen their belief. He wants to strengthen their faith. He wants to increase the amount they trust him. Guys, the most loving thing that God can give us in any circumstance is not necessarily physical prosperity, but the most loving thing that God can give us is himself. Okay? The most loving thing God can give us in any circumstance is himself. Psalm 16.11 says, 
You made me to know the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Speaking about God. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You think about God that way? At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. He is the source of all joy, all happiness. So the most loving thing God can do for us, according to this text, is to one, give us belief. What do we mean by belief? That God would so shape our souls so that we could delight in the glory of Christ more than anything in this world. Our souls don't start that way, right? The default soul you get out of the box is not like that, right? God has to craft our souls so that they delight in the glory of Christ more than anything else. And that is a huge blessing, okay? And then secondly, is to give us his glory, to give us unending access to him, right? Isn't that the most loving thing that God could do in your life? Would be to craft your soul to be a receptor of his glory and find your joy in him, and then for eternity give you unending access to that glory. And that's what he's doing for them. And only God knows how to do that. Only God knows what it takes. Only God knows the best way to that ultimate good. And often it involves suffering. I um, put something on Facebook and Instagram. And it was like, hey guys, please complete this sentence. And the sentence is, Jesus became real to me when? Right? Maybe think about that for you guys. Jesus became real to me then. When? That's not necessarily when you got saved. That might be. Or it might have been later where Jesus, you know, you believe her, but then he became real to you, you know? But Jesus became real to me when? And it was interesting, the answers. There are a variety of answers. For some, it was when, they're, when they had their first child, you know, and I could totally relate to that answer, you know, that you go like, whoa, there has to be a God. Like, this is crazy. This is like a human, came out of a human. Like, this is amazing, <laughs> right? And so dramatically. And then there were other people that were like, you know, whoa, I, um, I first knew Jesus was real when I really saw his grace or his love. And so there was that kind of answer. But there was a very strong stream of suffering. There were people that said, Jesus became real to me when my marriage ended. And he didn't fix it. But he became real to me then. He became real to me when I was suicidal. A couple of those. He became real to me when my father died. He became real to me when I was desperately sick. He became real to me when I had to enter rehab. I mean, these are the pathways often to where Jesus becomes real to us. Only he knows how to do this best. And the best way for Jesus and Mary, sorry, the best way for Jesus to make Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the disciples see him most clearly was to let Lazarus die. And that's what we see in this text. And that's how to make sense of verses five through six. It doesn't make sense any other way. Read it again. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Have you guys ever considered, and I say this to myself too, have you ever considered that your suffering is actually a way Jesus is loving you? We don't usually think that way, right? But this text tells us that our suffering is a way he loves us. And this is something, guys, that the Epicurean paradox misses, right? That there could be some long-term good that is so worthwhile that it's worth experiencing short-term suffering. They rule that out, right? They say, all suffering's bad. But the Bible tells us that there is a long-term good that is worth experiencing short-term suffering, even if that's extreme suffering, and even if that suffering is lifelong. Because, guys, in the grand scheme of things, that's short-term, too. It doesn't feel like it now. And this is what Paul said when he tried to make sense of his own intense suffering. He said, so we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away. How many of you guys can relate to that? The inner self is being renewed day by day. You know, seeing the glory of Christ, um, enjoying his glory, having your faith built. So this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And guys, another mistake we often make, and I do too, is that we think, if I can't see a reason for this suffering, either in me or in someone else, then there must not be one. You guys thought that way? If I can't see a reason for this suffering, there must not be a reason. But guys, listen, if God is big enough to be in control of all of our suffering, he is big enough to have reasons for allowing it that we can't yet understand. I'll say that again. If God is big enough to be in control of our suffering, he's also big enough to have reasons for allowing it that we can't yet understand, right? I mean, if he's God and he's in control of these things, then he's God and could be working ends which we have no way of knowing right now. Have you guys ever looked at a, a tapestry? How many of you guys own a tapestry? Oh, you own a tapestry. Awesome. I should have had you bring it. Um, so a tapestry is like a scene or a picture, but it's, it's of woven yarn, right? And it's pretty amazing that somebody could do this where they're kind of weaving yarn in and they're building this picture. Like, how would you know how to? Yeah, I don't know. The steps are amazing to me. But you weave all this different colored yarn together, and in the end, you have this, like, beautiful, amazing, intricate scene, if you're good at it, right? <laughs> but guys, have you ever seen the back of one? What does the back look like? It looks like a mess, right? It's like all kinds of ends. It's this, you know, random bunch of jumble of knots and ends. It's all the places where, you know, you switched colors and you tied a knot, right? So you look at the back, it looks like just a disaster. Guys, that is what we see on this side when we look at our suffering in this life, right? Our pain looks so random. It looks so jumbled. It looks so knotted up. We think, what good could possibly come from all this? This, this can't lead anywhere good. But guys, one day when the Lord returns and brings his kingdom and makes this world new, we get to see the other side, right? We get to see this scene he's been building that we couldn't see on the other side. We live on the jumbled side. But one day, guys, you will see the breathtaking scene that God's been weaving throughout time. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to worship him for it. You're going to praise him for the way that he could work through your pain to make something so beautiful. Because that takes God to do, right? And let's not forget, guys, that the God who's weaving our story with pain is doing so with nail-pierced hands. Okay? The one true God who is weaving our story is not immune to suffering. He is not insulated in some ivory tower unaffected by suffering. Right? And we even see that in this chapter. Take a look at verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. See that word, deeply moved? You know what it means? Angry. <laughs> that word means indignant. Okay, and, and I'm not making this up. And you go, well, mine doesn't say that. Mine isn't either. And you know what? The translators, they're being babies. Okay, <laughs> because this word clearly means, it means like it's used for the snorting of a horse. Horses snort, they're not stoked. I'm a horse vet, I know. They're snorting at me. I'm more careful, right? Jesus is indignant here. He's angry. The translators are either being babies or they're treating us like babies. Like, we can't handle that. Like, we won't go, angry, what do we do, you know? Well, we'd think about it and we'd figure it out, right? We can handle this. But he's angry. Have you guys ever been so infuriated by the suffering you see in the world? So is Jesus. Isn't that good to hear? So is Jesus. Look at verse 35. It's a long one. Jesus wept. Okay, that's it. That's all the whole verse. You know? <laughs> Jesus wept. 
And he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even knowing what he's about to do, right? He knows he's going to raise him, and he's weeping. Why? Because he enters into our world, and he feels the pain and the suffering we feel. He's not immune. Because I think a lot of times when we have issues with God allowing suffering, we think of him as like, you know, like Allah or somebody, you know, that hasn't suffered a day in his life if he existed, and uh, kind of just throws down judgments. Our God's not like that. Our God feels the suffering we feel. Do you know he feels your pain? Look at um, Psalm 34, 18. You don't have to. I'll just read it. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You guys realize that God like zeroes in on people that are, that are crushed in spirit. And he gets close to them. He, he knows what that's like. I love Psalm 56, 8 says, You have kept my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not written in your book? You know the tossings. You're sleeping. You're trying to. And you're tossing back and forth. And maybe it's your own physical pain. Maybe it's the pain of your family or pain of others. Maybe it's some sort of spiritual pain that you have. Um, one thing about being connected in a church, which you guys who are very connected in the church know, you connect yourself to a whole bunch of pain. I think that's part of the reason why people avoid church, even professing believers. It's like, you know what? I could just listen to podcasts and I could just deal with my own problems and not have to kind of be connected to all that pain, you know? But we hear about the pain that everybody's dealing with, you know? All the things, all the lives. I look out over you and I can, I can think of many different situations of intense pain. You know, he says that God counts our tossings. <laughs> that he sees that. He cares about that. He puts your tears in a bottle, you know, not literally, but like that's a cool metaphor, isn't it? Are they not written in your book? How about um, Psalm 116.15? It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You know, that when we come to that place, when it's our time to end, you know what? God's going to be there. <laughs> that's a room that he always wants to be in. You know, that's a room he zeroes into. Precious in the the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You guys know that Isaiah 53 says that God himself became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief to end all suffering. And, um, and, and the reason why he did that is because there's a perfect world he's bringing without suffering, but it's a world that we don't deserve to live in. You guys realize that? We have all sinned. We have all caused our share of suffering in this world. And um, there is a suffering that we all deserve, not the suffering in this life. We deserve the suffering of being separated from God forever. But Jesus came, suffers on the cross, and if you'll trust in him, and I know there's got to be some here, people here that haven't yet. If you'll trust in him, he will remove all your sin, and you can enjoy fellowship with him starting now forever. Jesus became a man of sorrows to end all suffering without ending you. And when this God weaves suffering into our lives, we know that he does it with nail-pierced hands. I've been thinking about that all week, you know? When God weaves suffering into my life, he does it with nail-pierced hands. He's not immune. He's experienced suffering. Jesus knows exactly what suffering costs. And so when he's weaving this tapestry and he's going to use some of your pain, he knows what it costs. He never uses extra, right? He uses just as much as is necessary for you to believe in him and see his glory. And so firstly, we can have joy in suffering as we trust in the love of Jesus. Now secondly, we can, we can have joy in suffering as we hope in the power of Jesus. I love this part too. This is so good. Um, remember the other part of the Epicurean paradox is that, you know, he's either not all loving or he's not all powerful. Behold the power of Jesus, guys. Take a look at verse 38. When Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, it was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, 
This, there's, by this time, there is an odor. It's been, he's been dead four days. And Jesus said, I love this, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you've sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had been dead came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I mean, this is amazing. It's totally amazing. You know in the text where it says, the man who had been dead? The original text says, the dead man came out. I mean, it's that shocking, you know? Oh, look, the dead man. It's like, oh, wait, no, he's not, you know? Like, he's alive. Guys, this wasn't a mere healing. This is a resurrection. A resurrection is the reversal of physical death. And he did it at the most hopeless time. There was a, a common belief at the time that uh, the soul would hover above the dead body for three days. And there was always some hope that, yeah, maybe it'll go back in, you know? Maybe it'll go back in, and maybe this person will come back to life. But at day four, they knew, this is it. And he comes, Jesus comes. When all hope is lost, all of a sudden, he uses his power to make all grief come undone. And, we, you know, we might be tempted to think this, and I'm maybe the bummer in this. But you might be tempted to think, oh, well, you know, good for them. You know, they got a resurrection, like, we live in a different kind of life, and we aren't seeing those kinds of things. Um, you know, he got a resurrection, you know, good for him. Where's our resurrection? What about us? You'll have one, too. You know that? You'll have one, too. You'll have one of these, too. This wasn't just for Lazarus. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you guys know what believers used to have written on their gravestones? They used to have a Latin word, resurgum. You know what it means? I will rise again. We need to get back to that. Okay? Instead of like, oh, another angel in heaven, you know, or, you know, I know he's in a better place and things like that. Like, there's something gutsy about going in the grave with a thing over you. I will rise again. Like, I'm coming back. You know, this isn't the end of my physical body. Guys, we will rise again. And we tend to water down our future that we have in Christ. We tend to just think of the way heaven is now, right? Spiritual place, the way it is now. And when we do think of it, we think of it very badly. We think of it with kind of a light blue skies and white puffy clouds and some people like really pathetically strumming harps, right? And maybe an arch, you know, and like a desk with Peter. And the arch doesn't seem to go anywhere. It seems it's like the same on both sides. This is our culture, right? And then, oh, where's God, you know, <laughs> Right? You know, where's God? It's a far cry from Revelation 4 and 5. Take a look at Revelation 4 and 5 today, you know. That is the way heaven is now. When you die, you will be present with the Lord in a context like Revelation 4 and 5. Not boring, amazing, in the presence of God, worshiping him. And it's going to be exquisite, right? That's our life after death. But you know what's better than our life after death? Our life after life after death. Okay? <laughs> So you have life after death, which I just described, and then you get the life after life after death, and it's called the resurrection. And we don't think enough about our final state, and I'll talk more about it on Easter and stuff, but when heaven and earth come together, and earth is made new, and our spirits return to our bodies, and our bodies are made new, 
That's the life after life after death. And like I said, we'll talk more about it on Easter, but I want to give real quickly three ways in which the resurrection of Lazarus is like our resurrection. Because I think that's what we're supposed to think about with this passage. We're supposed to think about our resurrection. And so three points real quick. First one is, is that our resurrection will be a resurrection to Jesus. And you see that in this passage where Jesus calls Lazarus, right? Personally, Lazarus come forth. It's a resurrection to him. Guys, one day Jesus will call out and raise all of his people to live physically forever on the new world. Um, John 5, 28 says, Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out. And and many people have said, you know, it's a good thing he was specific with Lazarus, right? Would have been embarrassing, you know? Like, come out. And he's like, oh, wait, (laughs) not you guys. Go back. (laughs) Not yet, (laughs) right? So he's very specific. But one day his voice, Jesus' voice, will call the dead out and will be made new and will always be with the Lord. Secondly, it's a resurrection together. I mean, imagine the reunion that you have here between Lazarus and Martha and Mary. All their dreams are again possible, right? They had all kinds of ideas of what their future would be like, all kinds of things that were going to happen. Death removed all that, and now it's all back again. Guys, we're going to be reunited. We're going to be gathered together with him, right? And we'll remember each other. Sometimes people have this idea like, will I remember my life? Yes, People are like, well, you know, how could I remember my life, you know, if there was pain and stuff like that, you know, then I think, you know, maybe he'll just kind of wipe my slate clean and I won't remember my past, right? That always worried me because I'm like, I'm not me if I don't have a past, right? You know, Revelation 6 says that the people that were martyred, people that had their heads chopped off, remembered their past life, okay? So if there was ever time to do the, the mind erasing, it would be then. We will remember our lives, every detail of it. But you know what, guys? Jesus doesn't have to erase our memories to make us happy. His presence makes us happy. Remember the tapestry. When we're on the other side of that, all that pain makes sense. He doesn't have to erase it. And so we're going to remember who we are. We're going to remember the relationships we have with each other. Um, On the other side, we're going to have deeper relationships with people we knew than we didn't. We're going to have to get to know the other people. It's going to take a while. You know, we got lots of time, right? (laughs) But I was thinking about, you know, my wife and I have talked about there's no marriage in heaven, but we're going to hang out, right? We're going to hang out. We're going to be together. We have something together that other people don't have together, and that's going to continue. There's going to be a reuniting. There's going to be a reunion. Guys, we lose nothing. We're going to pick up right where we left off. And then lastly, we're going to be resurrected and unbound. I love how he comes out like kind of like a mummy, you know, he's all tied up. And they're like, unbind him, right? Guys, these bodies we live in right now are bound, okay? These bodies that we have can die. They have all kinds of problems. Lazarus' resurrection was just a foretaste or an appetizer of our resurrection. It wasn't the real one, right? He can die again. He's just as vulnerable to death. In fact, they want to kill him. They're like, you know, later on in the chapter, they're talking about how they're going to kill him and destroy the evidence of Jesus' miracle, right? It's not permanent. You die again. His life was just as fragile as it was before. But guys, when we're resurrected, we're going to have bodies that are unbound, undying, unaging, unaching, right? Strong, vibrant, sinless, creative, brilliant. We're going to build things. We're going to create. We're going to explore the world he has for us. When he makes this world new, we're going to explore that. And then I think about what comes next. What's he going to do next? We don't know what the next part of the story is. You say, well, that's kind of weird. I thought that was the end. I don't think it can be. I mean, God is too creative an author. We're not just chilling, right? 
He's got some sort of adventure planned for us in the future. It will be our life after life after death. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus, these guys, these poor saints, they had a very hard at least week, right? Lazarus gets sick. They send for help. Help's delayed. Lazarus dies. They mourn his loss. Um, They didn't know what was coming, right? They didn't know what was coming. Guys, that's the week we live in. We live, our whole lives are lived in the week of sickness, death, the time before the resurrection, right? And so we do what they did. We pray, right? We, we wait. We trust. And sometimes Jesus heals. I love how Martha goes, you know, hey, if you'd been here, my, my uh, brother wouldn't have died. And then she goes, but even now, like, you could do something, right? That's the way we need to be in this time, right? I haven't seen so much answered prayer in such a contracted period of time as I have since we started this in September, I mean, it's amazing the way God's answering prayer. So sometimes he heals, sometimes he delays, right? But always he loves. Sometimes he heals, sometimes he delays, always he loves. But unlike them, guys, we have the advantage. We've seen the nail-pierced hands that weave our future, and we know what's coming next. We will rise again. We will lose nothing to death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we believe this. And we are so thankful, Lord, for your love and your power. And we just ask that you would forgive our doubting your hand, our questioning what you'd be doing, Lord, as we see your amazing love as evidence on the cross, your son dying for us, you giving your son, your son willing to come. And we thank you for loving us, people like us, with such amazing grace. And we just pray, Lord, as we go out, as you send us out, that you would send us out with the hope and the joy and the peace that fits such great news. Lord, we rest in the care of a God with nail-pierced hands. We know that. We know that we will rise again. And so we pray, help us to worship you today. Help us to love one another in the, in the hour or whatever we have afterwards. Help us to love one another well. And then throughout the week, Lord, to be loving each other and the world well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash Menifee.